you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22, the story of the rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Let's pray. Our Father God, sorry, Mark chapter 10, sorry. (laughs) Mark chapter 10. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of being here, and we thank you for your word. We come now and we pause our hearts, knowing that we need you to help us to understand your truth, that we might be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would draw us to yourself. And for those who may hear this message and may not know you, that their their eyes and their hearts would be open to see your truth. And for those of us, Lord, who do know you, that this would strengthen us and give us more fervor to grow in you, but also to share your truth with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says this. As he, this is Jesus, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. I remember uh, when I first started studying this passage many years ago, I thought to myself, this is so confusing to me because I had a different idea of evangelism than what Jesus was practicing here a different way of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation to people. I had a different idea. Because I remember I took an evangelism class in training for that mission trip back when I was 17 years old in England. And I remember on the streets of London, we had a strategy because we believed you needed some sort of hook to get people in because we, we, we kind of in practice believed that the, the word of God just wasn't powerful enough to draw people itself. And so we have had these uh, gimmicks, and there's, there's nothing wrong necessarily with doing what we did unless you're relying upon that to really get people to listen or, or to, to, you're thinking that's where the strength of your evangelism is. Uh, we had this thing on the streets where there were about 10 of us, and uh, one of us would bring an easel, one of those three-legged things with the, the artist board on it, and, and, a ta- uh, so we would, and a bunch of paint, and uh, we took turns being the artist. None of us were very artistic. But we, what we found is in London, in the summertime, in parks and street corners and so forth, if you get a crowd around you, the crowd grows. So one of us would act like he was a painter and the rest would act like they were trying to see what we're doing. So they would crowd around the painter and we had a spiel that we had memorized about this and we're drawing things and we had this boomerang that we drew and we're writing letters in it and it's going to come back to you and we just had this long like 10 minute like artistic speech where we're throwing paint up there and 
and um, talking. And, and as the crowd grew, those who were with us would slowly slip away one by one and set up a perimeter, a zone defense around the, 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 the back of the crowd. The crowd would continue to grow. They would let more in, and the net was around it, okay? And uh, as soon as the person drawing would, would say, and it's Jesus Christ, as soon as they would say Jesus Christ, some people would just leave. Oh, I've been, this isn't some kind of artistic thing. This is an evangelistic thing. They would turn and leave, and there we were on the perimeter. Hey, what do you think about what this guy is saying? You know, and we had our tracks and our decision cards and everything, and that was one of the hooks that we used to try to get people to listen to the gospel. So when I came to this passage, I thought to myself, man, it seems like Jesus didn't take the same evangelism class that I did. It appeared to me that he made four mistakes. Four key mistakes. And so I'm going to start off this message this morning by talking about four apparent mistakes that Jesus made. I use the word apparent because they just appeared to be mistakes. We know he's perfect. Okay, so four apparent mistakes. First of all, Jesus didn't answer the man's question. I mean, this guy came to him and says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. And yet Jesus looks at him and he says... Why do you call me good? So, if he, I mean, picture yourself. If you're with Jesus and you're knocking on doors, or somebody comes up to you and says, hey, how can I have eternal life? Good teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? And the guy with you says, well, why do you call me good? Whoa, hang on. This is, this is, a, this is a live one. We haven't even had to do... You know, he's dead spiritually, but he's alive and he's coming to us. He's asking us about salvation. And so what do we, you know, let's just, you know, I, I mean, I've been called a lot worse than good teacher, right? In fact, I had in, in Malawi, there was this one lady who continually would come up to me and say, Father Brian, Father, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not a priest and I'm not your father, so you don't need to call me Father and, but after a while, I just stopped correcting her because she just was determined to call me Father Brian. I just overlooked that. Um, but here, Jesus diverts the whole attention from the original question to why do you call me good? So that was, seemed like apparent mistake number one. Apparent mistake number two is Jesus brings up the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. He's the Messiah. He's ushering in a new era. And yet he opens up Exodus 20 when he says in verse 19, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. He adds in there, do not defraud. And then he says, honor your father and mother. Now, again, this was confusing to me because, you know, if you read John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night. I'm just going to turn there to John chapter 3. And Nicodemus approaches Jesus and asks a very similar question. John 3, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that sounds like a New Testament Messiah. You need to be born again. You're spiritually dead. You need to be regenerated. You need to, the, the God needs to make you alive. You must be born again. You need to become a born-again believer. 
But to the rich man, he says, you know the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. It just seems just strange to me that he would say that. Um, You know, not only that, but uh, you think about some of the things he says, like do not steal, do not false witness, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Now, Jesus had taught about that in Matthew as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus said, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, but whoever commits murder shall be liable in the court. So it's true, and then, then he goes on to say, but anyone who's angry, angry with his brother unjustly has committed murder. But it's still confusing to me that you would just bring up the Old Testament to the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? A, a third apparent mistake of Jesus is he brought up money. He brought up money. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that this man is young. Uh, uh, the uh, Luke's gospel tells us he was a ruler, which means that he was influential in the community. He was some sort of community leader, like a young politician. All three synoptic gospels tell us that he was rich, which I think for most of us, I mean, that would really cause us to treat him differently. And you look at who Jesus did choose to be his disciples. Here is somebody young, influential in the community, and wealthy. And he says, he brings up money to him. He says, go and sell all you possess, verse 21, and give to the poor. Well, where else in the Bible does it say in order to become a Christian, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? This just seems like a weird statement to be saying. And not only that, how does that even work? I mean, if everybody who became a Christian sold all they had and gave it to the poor, then they'd be poor. And then somebody else would come in and they would sell and I guess they could give it to other Christians, but then they, well, they have to give it again. I mean, it's just, there's so many questions. How does this work? And then a fourth mistake, apparent mistake, is that Jesus lets him go away. Verse 22, but at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving. This guy is emotional about this. I don't know if you've ever been, uh, you know, uh, evangelizing before, but when you're telling somebody about the gospel and their emotion, do you just, you just, do you just, and they start to walk away because you've told them something difficult, aren't you going to go after them and say, well, hey, listen, why don't you come back? Come visit our church. Hey, you know, here Jesus just lets them walk away, and this is the last time we hear from this man in the scriptures. We don't know if he ever came back. It's possible he did. We, we don't know. But if ever there was anybody who came to the right person at the right time with the right question, in the right manner, he knelt down. It was this man. It was this man. And Jesus seems to give him a hard time, not give him the right answer. The, then brings up the Old Testament, then talks about money. Who talks about money before you come to faith in Christ? I mean, does that seem, I mean, you know, somebody, it just, you know. And then fourthly, uh, he just lets them go away. That was my first perception of this passage. But because I knew that God is sovereign and because Jesus is God and God, Jesus knows all things and he's perfect and he never sins, he couldn't have made any mistakes here. 
So I had to restudy the passage. So I'm going to go back. That was all introduction. We're going to go back and we're going to look at four fatal flaws of the rich young ruler. Because these four flaws of the rich young ruler are really what the passage is about. It can't be about Jesus making a mistake. That's just how we come to this passage. The first flaw of the rich young ruler is he didn't recognize Jesus as God. Let's read it again, verses 17 and 18. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The answer to the question, why do you call me good, is, but Jesus, you are God. But that's not what this man said. In fact, this man just viewed him as a good teacher. Jesus is trying to get at the fact here that he is much more than just a good teacher. I remember one time in Africa, I'm witnessing to a Muslim man. He owned a business that I frequented. They sold construction supplies. I would go in there. We would talk. And he said to me uh, one time, he said, so you're a Christian. I said, I am. And he said, well, I'm a Muslim, as you know. And he said, "Uh, but uh, you and I have a lot in common. I said, what do we have in common? He says, well, we both believe in Jesus. I said, you believe in Jesus? He says, yes. He says, I believe in Jesus. I just believe that you believe that Jesus is God, and I believe that he is a good teacher. Now, my response to that is, wait a minute. If that's all you believe about Jesus, can that be true? Because if I told you today that I was God, let's just say that I came here and said, I'm God. And besides the fact that I'd never be invited back here again, okay, uh, you, if I really believed that I was God and I said I was God, would any of you walk away from this morning saying, wow, you know, I don't agree with anything he said, but wow, he was a really good teacher. And I, I think we should have him again because he's such a good teacher. You'd say he's crazy or he's a horrific teacher because he teaches blasphemy, declaring himself to be God. And Jesus Christ indeed declared himself to be God. In John 8, verse 58 Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And later in John chapter 10, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus said, for which of the good works do you choose to stone me? And those who were angry picked up stones, and they said to him, not for any good thing that you do, or any good work that you do, but because you, being a man, declare yourself to be God. You think his listeners understood who he declared himself to be? And then you have that beautiful story in in. John chapter 20, where remember Jesus had appeared, he's risen from the grave, he appears to the 10 disciples because Judas is no longer with them, and, and Thomas, we're not sure where he was, but after Thomas comes back, the rest of the disciples say, Thomas, Jesus is alive, and what does Thomas say? He says, I will not believe unless I put my hands in his hand and put my hand in his side, and then Jesus, in John chapter 20, appears to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, Thomas, put your hand in my hand. And here, put your hand in my side. And does Thomas do that? No. Thomas says, looks at him and declares him in worship. And he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas worshiped Jesus as God. And therefore, either Jesus has to be God 
or he is an idolater because he's a man who allows himself to be worshipped. No one else allowed themselves to be worshipped in Scripture. Angels did not allow themselves to be worshipped. Apostles did not allow themselves to be worshipped. Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped by men, declaring himself to be God. Therefore, either he has to be God, he cannot merely be a good teacher. So don't patronize me with your ideas that we have a lot in common because you say he's a good teacher. You don't believe he's a good teacher unless he's God. Either he's a terrible teacher or he's God. And you must believe that he's God. And if you do not believe he's God, you are not saved. And that's why Jesus said to this young ruler, no one is good. Except for God alone. That's why Jesus looked at him and says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So, that's the first flaw of the rich young ruler. He didn't recognize Jesus as God. The second flaw of the rich young ruler is he didn't recognize his own sin. Jesus said, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. All of them? All those things from his youth up? You know, honoring your father and mother comes from your heart. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, that you can divide them up into two categories. One of them are directed towards God. They could be summed up with the verse, uh, you, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The rest are directed towards your neighbors, like do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, on, you know, honor your father and mother. The people around you, do not covet. And those, those could be summed up with the commandment, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus could have referred to any of these commandments. He decided to refer to love your neighbor as yourself because he knew, Jesus who knows all things, that this man loved something more than his neighbor. In essence, he loved something more than God. He did not care for his neighbors as he should. He loved his money more than anything else. But this guy didn't recognize his own sin. He didn't think he was a sinner. All these things I have kept from my youth up. Is there any way possible that you could be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. Jesus never sinned. And that's why he brings up these commandments. He he does this elsewhere. He he did this at other times to talk about, hey, the only way to get to heaven is to be perfect. And the answer to that is, but Jesus, I'm not perfect. Can there be another way? Yes. I came to seek and save that which was lost. And I am the perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus never sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Therefore, everyone who sins must die. Jesus did not have to die, yet he allowed himself to die on a cross as a perfect sacrifice, as a substitute, taking your place if you repent and turn and follow him. But this man did not recognize his own sin. This man... uh, We look at a third fatal flaw. It says that, um, well, before we go on to that, let me just just think about this sin for a moment. Because I mentioned uh, Matthew chapter 5 earlier. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read some some verses out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, we already talked about murder. 
Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In other words, what he's saying is, you might say, well, I've never murdered anybody, but he says, you know, the sin that's in your heart when you're angry unjustly at somebody is the same sin that's in the heart of the person who pulls the trigger. He says, in verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You may say, well, I, you may say, well I've never really cheated on my wife with a physical act of adultery. But if you've allowed your mind to wander and think about the things you would have liked to have done if you could have gotten away with them, the same sin that's in your heart as you're imagining that is in the heart of the adulterer, and you are guilty before God as a sinner. Jesus went on in verse 29 of Matthew chapter 5 to say, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Jay Kessler used to work for Youth for Christ and he was at a time running some youth meetings and he met a, um, a father of one of the girls in his group and after the father drove off, the girl says, oh, no, did you meet my dad? And he said, well, yes. And, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Well, why are you embarrassed? Well, did you see he only has one hand? And, uh, and Kessler says, uh, well, yeah, but, I mean, you know, that happens to people from time to time. She says, do you know how he lost his hand? And, uh, and Kessler says, no. She says, well, he read that verse in the Bible, says if your hand causes you to sin. He went behind our house. He put his hand on the stump where we cut wood. And he cut off his hand. Which is a a terrible interpretation of this passage. Jesus didn't literally mean to cut off your hand. Why? How do we know that? How do we know that this doesn't really mean to pluck out your eye or to cut off your hand? Because Jesus said very clearly, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But your eye or your hand don't cause you to sin. It's not as though you're sitting at a park bench and a girl walks by wearing short shorts and your eye pops out and saying, hey, look over here. It's not as though you're in a grocery store and you're looking at this uh, aisle right here and this hand is taking things from the other side of the aisle and putting it in your pockets without your knowledge and you walk out of the store and the guy says, can I check your pockets? And you look and you say, oh. I mean, if that's really how it works, yeah, then literally. But we know that's not how it works. It's your heart, but it's not your heart. It's your, it's your innermost being. We are sinners by nature. We inherited it from our nature because Adam was a sinner. We're born sinners. I've had, I have four kids. I haven't had to teach any of them how to sin. It comes naturally to them. I don't even have to tell them how to improve. Next time when you say you don't haven't eaten the chocolate cake, try wiping your mouth before. No, they learn. They pick it up like a duck to water. It's part of their nature. We are sinners. And let me tell you something. If you don't recognize the fact that you're a sinner, you cannot be a Christian. And this young man didn't recognize Jesus as God, and he did not recognize that he was a sinner. But there's a third fatal flaw of the rich young ruler. And that is he didn't recognize his love for himself. 
He didn't recognize his love for himself. It says, verse 21, Jesus looking at him felt a love for him. I love it that Jesus loved him. I love it that this passage says that, that he felt a love for him. Remember, Jesus was on a journey. It says in verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey. Can you imagine? You get into the car. You got the kids loaded. The car's all packed up. Hey, kids, you ready to go on a vacation? Yeah, Dad. And the neighbor comes over. You roll down the window. The neighbor says, hey, I was wondering if you could tell me about how to inherit eternal life. And the kids go, because you're out of the car and you're, honey, hey, get my Bible. You know, this is, this is, you know, and you're, you're, you know, and an hour later, the kids are back in the house. And, you know, Jesus loved this man. But you know what? He loved him enough to tell him the truth, even though it may have been offensive to him. He didn't make it easy for him. He loved him. And we should love others. We'll be, I find myself in circumstances where I'm like, God, this isn't how I plan to spend my day. If I were writing this page of this chapter of the book, I wouldn't be here in this hospital room, or I wouldn't be here in this line at the DMV, or I wouldn't be wherever, but this is where you have me. So what is it you have me to do today? Thy will be done, not my will be done. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. This guy, uh, he, didn't, he, he really didn't realize that the idol of his heart was money. And he held something in higher esteem than he did the living God. And that was another one of his fatal flaws. And let me tell you something. If you love anything or anyone more than Jesus Christ, you cannot be a Christian. That's why he says to this person, you have to give this up. And then he says, come and follow me. The, 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 the gospel is not a gospel of self-esteem. It's a gospel of self-denial. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and come and follow me. Jesus Christ must be the most important person in your life. Otherwise, you're not really following. This man didn't recognize Jesus as God, didn't recognize his own sin, didn't recognize his love for self, And fourthly, he didn't recognize his need to repent. It says, again, verse 22, but at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. That word grieving is used throughout the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, that word is used as interpreted, it's translated as sorrow, and it speaks about a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. The godly sorrow leads to repentance and ultimately to salvation, but a worldly sorrow is just saddened. Not so much because they want to repent, but saddened because their sin has been pointed out or they've been caught. But there's no real genuine repentance. This man had sorrow, but what kind of sorrow do you think he had? It was, a, it was a worldly sorrow, a sorrow without repentance, and that's what this man lacked. The word repent is a military term. It, really, it means to turn around and go the other direction. And so if you are to the place where you say, I believe that Jesus is God, I recognize my own sin, and I'm, I'm broken over that sin, 
I recognize that I don't want to have anything in my life that is greater than my love for Christ. So I'm going to call upon him, and I genuinely repent. That is, I want to turn from the direction I've been heading, which is I see now clearly away from God, and I want to turn and follow him with my whole life, 110%. I want my life to be all about him. I don't care what it costs me. It's him. That is genuine grief and sorrow over sin, and that is sin that leads to repentance. And this man did not repent. He walked away sorrowful. Repentance is what what Jesus began preaching in Matthew 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. That's John the Baptist. Jesus, in Matthew 4, 17, repent. Peter, in Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized. Paul, when he started preaching in Acts 26, 20, repent. Repentance is essential for salvation. And if you may have grown up in a church where you've never really, or, 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 or just had this idea. I had a lady one time at our church get baptized, and she said, I grew up in a church where, you know, I, I thought it was a good thing to follow Jesus. I thought it was nice that he died on the cross. I just didn't understand why he needed to. She had never been confronted of her own sin. She had never truly repented and turned and followed Christ. Four fatal flaws of the rich young ruler. Didn't recognize Jesus as God. Didn't recognize his own sin. Didn't recognize his love for himself. Didn't see his need to repent. The good news, it says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We have that idea of confession lordship that he is my master that i must abandon everything else and believe and faith that's somebody who's a genuine believer so i want to encourage you this morning rejoice if you've been saved from what you've been saved from and share that news with others and if you are in your heart of hearts are saying you know i'm not sure that i genuinely have trusted in christ like that i've been more like the rich young ruler than like what what has just been explained to me now, then I urge you this day to fall to your knees and repent and turn and trust in Christ as your Lord and your Master. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together in your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending Christ to die on the cross. We are truly grateful. Thank you for the fellowship that we have in him, for times like this where we can gather together for good food and good fellowship and good conversation. Lord, may we continue to come to you. We pray that in humility, recognizing who you are and who we are, we trust in you with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.